everyone. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today I'm going to be talking to my friend Neve Ubrain from Life Institute in Ireland. Now, those of you uh, who follow my work on LifeSiteNews.com will know that last year I wrote a book called Patriots, The Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement, which was published earlier this year. We were supposed to have several book tours, but COVID has canceled that. So we're hoping that one day when all these lockdowns lift, we're still going to have the opportunity to do that. But in the book, I essentially explored how Ireland managed to keep abortion out for 35 years. And then I really took a close look at the untold story of how the Eighth Amendment in Ireland was actually defeated by the abortion lobby, along with its allies in the progressive political sphere, as well as in the media. And one of the interesting and very tragic things that has taken place in the two years since the referendum is that time and again, the pro-life leaders who ran the Save the Eighth campaign, and Neve was one of the primary spokespeople for Save the Eighth, have been proven, unfortunately, to be right again and again and again. They explained in countless campaigns by knocking on tens of thousands of doors on huge billboards in media interviews what would happen if abortion came to Ireland and over and over and over again the politicians and the journalists denied that this would be the case the abortion lobby denied that this would be the case and now tragically we see the same sorts of horrifying things that regularly unfold in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, unfolding in Ireland as well. And so in order to kind of have a discussion about this and take a look at what's taking place, I had a conversation with my friend Neve, who is the head of the Life Institute, as well as a commentator for Gripped, which is an alternative Irish news platform that covers all of the issues the mainstream media won't. Neve is a phenomenal pro-life activist. She has done. She's been involved since she was a teenager, and she's actually one of the founders of of Youth Defense, another incredible Irish pro-life organization. I'm thrilled to have her on the show, and unfortunately. You won't enjoy a lot of this conversation because we're talking about really horrifying things, but I do think it's important that you realize what's going on. I think it's important that we revisit what has taken place in Ireland since the referendum, and I think it's important that we recommit ourselves once again to fighting this horrific human rights violation wherever it surfaces. So the first thing I want to discuss is this story uh, that's been published over at Gript, written by uh, John McGurk, titled Irish Babies Are Being Born Alive and Left to Die After Abortions. Now, that headline is going to sound uh, really insane to your average person. They're going to say, well, of course, a pro-lifer would write that. Of course, somebody associated with the Save the Eighth campaign back in 2018 would write that. So maybe walk our listeners through the story. What is this story all about? Absolutely, Jonathan. So what happened here in the last couple of months was there a paper was published in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, so a medical paper, research paper, by uh, three medical practitioners from UCC, one of whom is practicing in a, a large maternity hospital in Cork in the south of Ireland. And the paper was gathered the experiences of uh, fetal medicine specialists who were providing, so doctors who were providing late-term abortions in Irish hospitals. And, you know, even that itself 
if you like, was a revelation to many voters, not to pro-life people, of course, because we understood during the referendum and we argued during the referendum that this, this legislation was going to allow for late-term abortions, but that was flatly and absolutely denied during the vote in order to get people to vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment. You know, we were told repeatedly it was, we were actually, that voters were actually told it was a lie to say there were going to be late-term abortions. So this study, first of all, confirms that feticide is taking place in, in, in Irish maternity hospitals. And we, I think we go in later on into what exactly that means, even, even feticide itself and how horrific that is, how horrific it is for the baby. It's so horrific, in fact, that the doctors in that study, one of them said, and he's quoted in the paper as saying that it felt like he was stabbing the baby in the heart. Another said that he had to go out into the corridor and get sick after performing a feticide, mm. because, of course, these are late-term abortions. These are, these are, you know, second and third trimester babies, and you can imagine how disturbing and horrific it is to kill a child at that gestation. But the paper also revealed something else that was, you know, equally horrific, and so horrific, I think, that sometimes, just as you kind of pointed to there, Jonathan, people always think it's beyond the bounds of possibility. And that's what happens when a baby is induced for a late-term abortion where feticide either doesn't happen because the, the, the parents involved don't want it to happen or because feticide doesn't work and the baby is born alive after the abortion. And for a lot of people, I think, will not be unfamiliar with this. And I know in Canada, uh, the last time you looked at this issue, there it was Statistics Canada reported that 491 babies had been born alive after after an abortion, and in the states, of course, this became a huge yeah a huge point of bone of contention. And when people like Jill Stanek came forward and told of their experiences in finding babies who had been born alive after abortion and simply been left to die, and that meant that the Born Alive Act was brought forward and became a huge uh, political point of discussion for, for, for many years in the states. And I think to Irish people at the time of the referendum, the thought that this might happen you know, seemed like something completely outlandish, like something from a, a horror show. And the t- terrible reality is that according to this paper, that horror show has become the reality in, our, in, in Irish hospitals. And after John McGurk posted that story, the media have done everything they can to completely ignore this report, to completely ignore what's been revealed in the report. But we are pointing, of course, to the actual words of what, of what is in the report and what the, about the, the doctors who are both those who are who put together the research and those who are involved in abortion are actually saying and you know what the doctors are saying is that there is a conflict between the doctors who are carrying out the abortions and the neonatologists who are meant to then provide care for babies who are born alive after abortion. And they say, this is their words, it's unclear who will look after these babies. This is a direct quote. If a baby is born alive following a termination of pregnancy, uh, this situation results in them in begging people to help them provide palliative care. So you have this absolutely horrific horrific scenario being discussed in this paper where they point out as well that Ireland's legislation, again this is their words, is without gestational limits mm-hmm. and so creates the opportunity for late TOP for FFA, that's termination of pregnancy, for what they call a fatal fetal abnormality and they say again that you know that there isn't any guidance here and that sometimes they find it difficult to persuade neonatologists or other doctors to take care of these children, that they're left begging for care for these children. So it's an absolutely 
horrendous, horrendous situation. And, you know, to be quite frank, Jonathan, if this was anything else but abortion, there would be riots on the streets right now. You know, you have babies being stabbed in the heart. This is what doctors are saying themselves. And deaths that are so grotesque and horrific that doctors are getting sick. They're actually, you know, getting sick, physically getting sick in the corridors. And you have babies, in the words of this paper, born alive after termination of pregnancy, where it's not clear who is meant to care for them and that the abortion doctors are then begging the other doctors for their help. You know, it's, I think, a hellscape that, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't have painted more horribly during the referendum and has now, just two years later, come to pass. Well, what's, what's interesting is that when it comes to talking about blurry lines, uh, you'll remember the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, gover- the governor of, uh, uh, of Virginia, Ralph Northam, talking about keeping the baby comfortable while they decide what to do yeah. with it. But what I found particularly mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. about this story is, is, is a couple of things. First, uh, I remember the outrage during the referendum about, you know, Catholic pro-lifers coming out against abortion. And, and you know, they were talking about, you know, everything from the Guam home, you name it. Anything they could do to throw at pro-life Catholics was done so. It turns mm. out, based on this story, that they were mm. largely offended that that sort of thing wasn't legal. Um, what I find interesting about McGurk's yeah. column here is, is Ellen Coyne, and her name jumped out at me. Uh, she's a pro-abortion journalist, uh, he says, who wrote about this for the Irish Independent. And her name was familiar to me because during interviews that I conducted for my book uh, on the Irish pro-life movement, Patriots, uh, her name came up several times mm-hmm. as one of the more aggressive pro-abortion journalists, especially mm-hmm. one of those journalists who basically dedicated nine months of her life to debunking the sorts of things that the pro-life movement were, were saying would happen. And she says right here uh, that, and I quote here, doctors warned there can never be any certainty about when a baby will die. That language was interesting yeah. because suddenly it's a baby now. And there is also, mm-hmm. and there is always an outlier case where a baby lives longer than expected. Doctors also struggled with cases where neonatologists who would refuse to provide palliative care to babies who were born alive after an early induction. In some cases, there was no clarity around, quote, who will look after the babies. Doctors reported being left begging people to help to provide palliative care. And you just said this, but it's interesting here is uh, Ellen Coyne in the Irish Independent essentially echoing precisely what you're saying in contravention to the sorts of things she said in the campaign lead up to to the Eighth Amendment's repeal. And she's calling them babies. She's talking about the fact that um, essentially they're going to die. Is there, there's, It's got to be almost uh, bitter to read a pro-abortion journalist essentially admitting what you guys have been screaming about for years. Well, she was probably the only person in the mainstream media to write about this report and her take on it, you know, if you, if you follow the link to, to her story, like the parts that John quoted from it were almost buried in the article. Most of her article was focused on the fact that, of course, babies shouldn't have to be have a non-fatal, they shouldn't have to have a fatal disability to undergo a late-term abortion. It should really be extended to non-fatal disabilities as well. But you're totally correct. You know, all of the journalists and the people 
um, and there are very many of them who lied about what this legislation would mean. And now, now that they've got what they wanted, are free, of course, to say whatever they like about the legislation because they feel at this case they've got what they wanted, the laws embedded, and, and they can perhaps report a, a little more truthfully. Because, to be honest, they are not telling the truth about this paper either. They're not acknowledging what's, what's happening. You know, if, again, like if this was a paper on any other subject under the, under the sun, and we were learning that babies were being stabbed in the heart, that babies were being left without care. You know, there would be an absolute outrage. It would be the, the, the front page news, the lead news on the, on the TV. There would be riots on the streets. You know, if somebody said to me, you know, if this was being done by the nuns, you know, because you, mm. you were here, you, you understand, Johnson, what I mean by that reference, yeah. because they, the, the journalists in this country paint, try to make the referendum all by the Catholic Church and... They, talk, they talked about Tume and about the terrible nuns. But, you know, when in fact, the nuns in Tume didn't kill any babies. But there are babies now being killed under this legislation in the most gruesome, horrific way. And the media is completely covering it up. And they're trying to ensure that people don't get outraged. And that's our job now. You know, that, that's the job of, of BRIPT as the, the only, you know, secular media platform that has run this story. Um, and it's our job to make sure to run the awareness campaigns to make people aware as to what's happening. Because I looked back today at... The, it was like a, the Oireachtas Committee, which would be like a parliamentary committee hearing in, in your country. And at the, the, the barefaced lies told by pro-abortion TDs who were pushing, pushing this through and how they attacked pro-life TDs, you know, who went into that committee and were subjected to days of abuse from the media and from uh, pro-abortion uh, TDs who told them they were liars, who told them they were scaremongering, who told them that they hated women, etc., etc., and who said this would never, never happen. And it has happened. And it's happened precisely because when you take away the right to life of the unborn child, this, this is what happens. You have late-term abortions, you have feticide, you have babies surviving abortion. And, you know, I think the fact that babies have been born alive after abortion is so gruesome and, and dreadful that sometimes we can overlook that feticide in itself is equally gruesome mm. and dreadful and that it was denied that would happen too. And I think just to perhaps bring people to an understanding of this, because feticide, according to the Royal College of, of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, in Britain, is you know, defined as the administration of potassium chloride to the baby when the baby is in the womb. And it's for late-term abortions, it's for babies after 21 weeks and six days, which is terribly late. Sometimes I think people think of late-term abortions as being you know, eight or nine months. But at this case, in this case, that would be a little over halfway mark in pregnancy. But the baby, of course, at that stage is a big baby. Mm-hmm. And the RCOG say that you have to carry out feticide in order to ensure that there's no risk of a live birth. And that's a direct quote again from them. They don't want this yes. risk of a live birth. And they make this, um, they, they set this as, if you like, their standard. Because what was happening previously was that babies were being delivered. Babies who had had a diagnosis of severe disability were being induced. So and 
it was a way sometimes for doctors to say, well, this is not you know, really an abortion. We're just inducing the baby early and, and birthing the baby early and letting the baby, and that the baby would die then during the birth. And very often, of course, the baby did not die during birth. So you had that one report from England um, where it showed that 66 babies had died in one year, survived after an abortion, uh, had been born alive after an abortion and had survived. And after that, of course, uh, the, the NHF never released any of those statistics anymore because they were so horrendous. And you had your case in Canada where 491 babies in, in, in a decade were shown to have been born alive. So that's why abortionists and the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynec- Obstetricians and Gynecologists in Britain brought out this guideline that feticide was, was, was the best way to ensure the baby wouldn't be born alive. And I think when women are told you know, that you're going to undergo feticide, the doctors make it sound as if it's a magic wand, as if it's some painless... Mm-hmm humane way of ending the baby's life. But of course, there is no painless, humane way to end a baby's life after 21 weeks and six days. So what happens is that the baby receives a lethal injection into the heart. It's an injection of potassium chloride. And people might you know, is think, I've actually, I've heard of that before. Why have I heard of that before? And it's because potassium chloride is used on death row to execute prisoners. And the injection itself, is considered, the, the administration of the potassium chloride is considered so excruciatingly painful that the authorities in charge of, of the executions in the US consider it necessary to firstly administer an anesthetic or a paralytic to avoid pain and suffering to the prisoner being put to death. And you know, the terrible, like heartbreaking reality is, is that when this is done to unborn babies, there's no obligation to administer pain relief to those children. And I think it's, it's, it's such, like it's a stain on humanity and it's a stain on this country that that is happening. And in 2018, when the abortion legislation was being rushed through the parliament after, after the referendum, again, then Minister for Health, Simon Harris, and you'll remember how vindictive he was following the referendum, Jonathan, and how determined he was not to give one inch of ground to pro-lifers. He refused to even allow this small shred of humanity, that babies who are undergoing a death so painful that they that will be given pain relief in the way that you know, any humane society would consider necessary, but he refused to allow it. And, and that's where we are now. I wanted to ask, uh, before we get into a little bit more about the, 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 the compounding lies that allowed for legal abortion in Ireland in the first mm. place, to ask about the, the political response, because when... When it was discovered that 491 babies had been essentially born alive and perished or left to die here in Canada, and those those statistics continue to get worse, there's a blogger, Pat Maloney, who runs a blog called Run With Life, who, who dedicates mm. her time to researching abortion stats, and she's the one who consistently uncovers these, these horrifying new facts. And there was yeah. two members of parliament uh, who stood up in our parliament and called on then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper to ask the RCMP to investigate this because in Canada's criminal code, abortion is legal up until the moment of birth. But once yeah. the child has, in the exact words of the criminal code, exited the womb in, in a living form, at that point, you know, the mantle of human rights ludicrously descends and, and, and they have protection under Canadian law. 
And Stephen Harper stood up to address the request of his two MPs, and all he stated was that abortion is legal in this country. Essentially stating, you know what, even if they die after birth, even if this is by definition an infanticide or infanticide by negligence, um, this is just all covered under Canada's abortion regime. And I thought the same thing that you just said there, that for any other baby, for any other human, there would have been riots. But now, even with a conservative prime minister, everybody just sort of nodded, oh, okay, I guess I guess that is just a really, really late abortion. How mm. have your politicians responded to the same thing happening in Ireland? Well, most of them have not had to give a response because the media are just trying to absolutely censor this. They're just trying to make sweep it under the carpet and make sure no one he hears about it. So the pro-life politicians are, are gearing up now to address this and to, and to ask the hard questions. Some of them have submitted uh, questions which must be answered in the parliament in the, in the, in the coming days and weeks. And they're, they're readying themselves to, to ensure that this doesn't just fade away, to ensure that questions are answered, to ensure that it's brought up in the parliament and to try to get, try to force the media to pay attention to it. And, you know, I'm sure all of them remember very clearly sitting at, the, at those parliamentary committees as they pushed, tried to push pro-life amendments, any pro-life amendments, late-term abortion, pain relief, help for babies born alive, even, even amendments which would ensure that women uh, could get an ultrasound before seeing the baby. And every, everything they offered in, in terms of making this legislation any bit more humane, any bit fairer, any more informative for women was all not just rejected, but like shouted down. And um, they will be <laughs> reminding many of the, of the people who sit with them in Parliament of that in the coming weeks and days. We're, similarly, we're, we're launching a video tomorrow uh, on this. Uh, we're asking people to get involved, to speak up, and we're appealing even to, to people who voted yes, because many people who voted yes did so because they believed the lies that were told in the referendum. Mm -hmm. And I've been looking back over the last couple of days over the huge headlines in the newspapers, you know, that Simon Harris said our, our assertion, which was true, of course, that this would allow for late-term abortion was a big lie, you know, and that put, those kind of headlines ran across all of the newspapers all of the time to undermine um, what we were saying and, and, and people, people believed it because uh, the propaganda worked so well and because these people, I was going to say they lied so convincingly, but to be honest, it's easy to lie convincingly when you're not going to be challenged by the media I and mean, everything right. you print is, is, is going to be printed verbatim with, with, the, you know, with a full guarantee of truth and, and no, no hard questions are going to be asked of you. So we're, we're saying to even to people who voted yes in this video, you didn't vote yes to this. Right. Nobody right. who has a shred of humanity in them wants a baby to be stabbed in the heart. Nobody with a shred of humanity in them wants a baby to get a lethal injection that is so painful that prisoners on death row have to get an anaesthetic first and a paralytic first. And nobody with a shred of humanity in them wants a baby to be born alive after an abortion and left there without care, struggling to breathe. Like, you know, I think very few people are that cruel or that monstrous. There are some, believe me, there are some. And I look at strident abortion campaigners who are just blinkered, absolutely blinkered to, to the humanity of the baby. But, you know, most people, I think, would be horrified to hear this. And we want them to speak up and to realise, you know, everything. And sadly, Jonathan, you know, we're going to come to this. Like, it's, it's, it's very sad. I, I wish it were not the case 
but mm. it's it's sad and difficult to look at what is happening now and realize that everything you warned people would happen would happen. You know, we were yeah. told be, we were told there'd be no there'd be no increase in the number of abortions, six thousand six hundred and sixty six in the first year, like double doubled doubled in the in the very first year, and we told there'd be no late term abortions, all of that and. A lot of people have said to me since this, the news of this study first broke, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I voted no to this. I was thinking as I was reading uh, a couple of the articles that were published at Gript and following what, what you guys were doing at Life Institute and, and a few places on, on the lead up to the referendum, um, both uh, the, the sorts of things that, that I recorded in, in, in the book Patriots, but also the billboards that you had up uh, right across Ireland in a lead up to the referendum. And I read a lot of the newspapers while I was out there um, in, in the lead up to the referendum and, and, and read all of these articles debunking everything the Save the Eighth campaign and, and other mm. pro-life campaigns were saying. And now, unfortunately, this is all happening. And I was wondering, it sounds so morbid to, to call this an opportunity um, because obviously, like, this data is just horrifying, although totally expected. And uh, if you look at, at what, what you guys were saying, predicted. It's not like mm. it was just expected. You said this would happen, and now it's it's happening because it happens everywhere an abortion regime takes root. I remember you saying this in interviews. I remember John McGurk saying this on TV. Um, everybody was saying it, and, and the media wasn't listening. Uh, but I also remember a video a, a few months after the, the state, well, right after Gripped, uh, started up. Um, for mm. quite, uh, where go, go head over to gripped.ie. It's an alternative Irish uh, news source that covers uh, the sorts of news that the, the, the mainstream media won't cover. And it was a video of, of Tim Jackson um, interviewing all of these, these people and asking, did you know this was in the legislation? How did you vote? And it was showing all these horrified yes voters realizing yeah. what they had voted for. And you know, in Ireland, unlike elsewhere, you've only had a legal abortion for two years. Is there an opportunity here to, to put up billboards with headlines from the Irish Independent, with headlines from the Irish Times saying they lied? Here's what they said. Here's what actually happened. And sort of to, to confront the voters with the fact that uh, they didn't get what they voted for. Yeah, you see, absolutely, and I know what, I know what you're saying, Jonathan. Like, no one likes to, to use the word opportunity because we don't we don't we don't want this opportunity. No. You know, like, would would I prefer if we were actually proved wrong and there was a reduction in the number of abortions and and there were no late term abortions? Of course, like, of course, I prefer that. Like, every baby lost is just a tragedy. Like, and every every woman who's made to feel this is the only choice she has. It's, 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 a, it's an appalling indictment of, of society and what, we, and what we have become. But that's not the case. And I think you're correct. Like when Tim made that video, he found it very revealing. Because when he was saying to people, do you know this is in it? Do you know this is in it? And they were saying, no, oh my God, I did not know that. You know, and of course, sometimes you feel like shaking them. You're like, oh, we spent three years telling you this. You know, we put yeah. up billboards. We knocked on half the doors of half the country. But I suppose you have to remember that they looked at all of these what they consider to be authority figures, you know, the prime or Tisha, if you're prime minister, that you know, you know, senior doctors who they didn't understand were just abortion campaigners, you know, coming out and and saying to them like this absolutely has to happen in order to protect women, which is untrue, and there absolutely will be no late-term abortions, which, as we know, is absolutely untrue. And it's funny that you raise that because, again, when I was looking back at those parliamentary hearings today and Simon Harris, the former the health minister at the time, and he was telling 
but again, a great deal of venom and spite, you know, telling the pro-life TDs, which are uh, politicians, uh, elected representatives, he was telling them that he was not accepting their amendments because he had a mandate from the people from the referendum for this legislation. And of course he didn't. Of course he didn't have a mandate for the horror that is happening now. People just voted to repeal the aid because they were led to believe that they had to to protect women, you know. And, and uh, like, uh, you know, it, we are in the process of cutting those clips out of those, out of those uh, videos because we want to remind people, this is what he said, and this is what happened. Do you remember the lie now that you know the truth? Of what has happened, you know, and that's it's absolutely vitally important that people understand that because, like everything else in life, unless you're unless this is what you live and breathe, you know, you forget political statements, you forget political promises. We all do that. It's why so I think it's why uh, politicians keep getting elected, of course, isn't it? Yeah. Because people people forget the amount of times that they uh, stretched the truth or, or or told a lie or or didn't live up to their promises and. It's absolutely so important, if you're 100% right, that we remind people of what was promised in regard to abortion. You know, it was more or less promised that it would be safe, legal and rare. And we can see already how absolutely untrue that has been. One of the cases that probably didn't reach Canada, again, because the media buried these things, um, happened just three months actually after the referendum. In March of 2009, uh, a couple went into the National Maternity Hospital, which is one of the biggest maternity hospitals here in Ireland, in Dublin. And according to them, they went for a, you know, a 20 weeks, week scan to find out if it was a boy or a girl, it was a little boy. And full of all of the expectations and happiness that you have when you're going for those scans and you're expecting your first baby. And they were told by the doctors that the baby had what the doctors called a fatal fetal abnormality, that there was no hope for the, for the baby. And they said they were led down and pushed down the road towards aborting the baby. They said at one stage, they said to the doctors, that we will have a sick baby. We, can, we will care for a sick baby. We, we're not afraid of that. We don't want an abortion for that. And that they were told, no, this was not, it's not about being sick, that this baby is going to die. There wasn't, this baby has no chance. And that the best thing to do would be to get an abortion, a termination. And because people often follow their doctor's advice, you know, they're bewildered, they're upset, they've got this terrible news. They've been told that there's no hope here, that this is the best thing for you to do. The best thing probably, I know women who've been told in that instant, it's the best thing to do for you and the baby. They went ahead and, and they were told, by the way, not to wait for the result of a second test to confirm that the baby had trisomy 18. They had the abortion and the test, second test came back and the baby was perfectly healthy. So absolutely, again, we were told this would never happen. This would never happen. The doctors were not rushing people into having abortions. Uh, you remember the brave women from groups like Every Wife Counts who mm. spoke up and who said, look, this has happened even before abortion was legal, we've been told to go to England to have an abortion when it, it was indicated that our baby might be very sick. And sometimes the babies did die and sometimes their babies had a, maybe just a Down syndrome or had, or had no disability at all, or had something that was fixable. And when they tried to tell their stories, how they were shouted down by, 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 very often by journalists or ignored by journalists at least and shouted down by abortion campaigners. And it was a very 
I think, sad and bitter thing to see, even just three months into the legislation, that, again, the cases that the precise thing they warned about was happening in the major maternity hospitals. That couple had been fighting with the help of some excellent pro-life TDs like, like Heather Turbine and Karen Nolan, Matthew McGrath and others, to, you know, to have that case investigated, to have a full investigation. And you know, people like Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar, the great champions of choice and the great champions of informed choice for women, are dragging their heels and doing everything they can to try to to try to delay, and that's the kindest word I would use, but uh, to, let's just say that they, that family are very upset. They said they feel abandoned by the state and they want to know why, you know, 16 months after their baby was killed, why there still has been no proper investigation into what's happened. You know, I'll admit the vindictive part of me um, mm-hmm. would, would want to run a campaign just to ensure that these corpses are laid at the feet of Varadkar and Harris, yeah. the vultures who facilitated this. Yeah. Uh, and not to let them forget a single day for the rest of their lives that these babies uh, and that blood is on their hands. Um, because they were done, they did it with full warning. Um, it's it's not yes. like they made a mistake. They're not in the same position as those those parents that you mentioned. They, they yes. knew what they were doing and they did it anyways. And I remember uh, when Tim, uh, the week before the referendum, or I think this was four days before the referendum, he went to crash that press conference. Uh, Simon Harris press conference and he asked Simon Harris and I thought this was brilliant whether uh, he thought that the, the right to life of politicians should be up uh, up for a vote um, yes. and in that question it, it just did capture it perfectly because do you know what when everybody screws up everybody makes mistakes mm-hmm. but most of our mistakes don't involve dead kids and yeah. the mistakes of Varadkar and Harris did result in dead kids and there has to be a way to hold them account hold them to account for that. I, I couldn't agree with you more and you're absolutely right. They went into this with full knowledge and full consent. Like Leo Varadkar is a medical doctor. Simon Harris, you had the, the legislation before him. Unlike, unlike most people who voted for it, he drafted this or at least his, his, you know, his civil servants drafted. He was responsible for it. He knew exactly what that legislation was going to do. You know? And he understood this perfectly. And most of the TTs voting on it understood that perfectly too. And those arguing for it. Because like you and I, they're, they're deeply involved in this. And they actually understand the issues. Unlike most of the people who went out to vote for it. And as very often too, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. Very often parents in that situation, like the one I just described, like they're, they're scared, they don't understand what's happening, they've never heard of this condition before, they're told that their baby is an abnormality, that it won't live to birth, and that the kindest thing to do is to have an abortion. And of course, those really sad cases were, were used to, to you, you remember this, when the, the, no vote, the yes vote was falling and, and falling fast, and it looked like... Um, all the talk about, you know, happy, clappy talk about choice and shouting my abortion, that wasn't working with the Irish people. And they went right back to do these hard cases and said, you know, if, if you don't vote yes, these people are going to suffer when, of course, it's precisely because people voted yes that now people like that family are suffering and suffering terribly. And, the, you know, people who are, because these, these are real cases being talked about in this paper. And we know, we know of women who even in the last week have come forward uh, to talk to, to some of our outreaches and to say oh my god like I didn't understand what a feticide meant and I can't I can't get over what has happened 
One of the things I, I was interested in is is when I was interviewing people for my, my book about the Irish pro-life movement and for how, how the Eighth Amendment was lost, I, I think I think close to a dozen people talked about the media as one of the key reasons that this got through. That essentially put it this way, uh, if, if the media had been covering the messaging of both sides fairly, at least it would have been a fair fight and it would have been a lot closer than it was. So looking, so 24 months or so after the legalization of abortion, it is gripped big enough? Is there an alternative voice that's been established now that allows you to take the sorts of tragic news that we just discussed and take it directly to the Irish people and to start building a consensus for some form of pushback? Yeah, well, like you're absolutely right. Like the, the Yes campaign in Ireland, the abortion campaign wasn't together for a yes. It wasn't the abortion rights campaign. It was the media. And they spent more than a decade on this, carefully crafting and building this case to repeal, to repeal the Eighth Amendment, exploiting every tragedy that they possibly could, only focusing on one side of the debate, only telling personal stories that, that would lead people to support repeal. It's a model that's been used successfully in every country throughout the world, you know. You, you, you get a mainstream media which has this extraordinary bias, which is, and they're very open about their bias. You know, at this stage, they don't, they don't even pretend anymore that they're, that they're trying to be fair or balanced. They just simply are the actual abortion campaign. And we realised after the referendum that, you know, we're never going to rebuild the culture of life, ever, if we don't do something real about the fact that the media is so biased. And that's how we set up Gripped. And it's, the, the website was launched in August. In the first 12 months, it had 4 million reads and about 50 million views on our videos. And that's really good progress. Do you know, yeah. that's, that, that's where we want to go. That, like, we obviously need to get much bigger. And we, hopefully we will. And it, it, it's, the, 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 it's only because we have Gripped, really, that we're able to try to make a new story out of this report. Because otherwise we're a campaign group with a website, you know, like 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 Life Institute, which is very useful, but it's different to having a news platform in order to be able to tell people the truth about what's actually happening in Irish hospitals according to the doctors themselves. Mm. You know, and again, I keep coming back to this. This is not our interpretation. These are the words of the doctors in this report, stabbing the baby in the heart, brutal, awful, getting sick in the corridor. You know, it's so important that people understand what's actually happening. And having a media platform that, that can do that in a way that reaches people immediately, that is experienced and professional, and that can report on these things uh, truthfully and fairly is really, really important. A final question would be, where can people who are interested in what's unfolding in Ireland find details of the story? Where can they, where can they find Gripped? Where can they keep track of what's going on with the abortion debate in Ireland? Well, you can find Gripped on Gripped.ie, and there's stories up about this report on it, on it uh, at the moment. Life Institute tomorrow will be launching the Stop Late-Term Abortion campaign, where we'll have a summary, uh, a briefing of the report, videos and uh, events that are going to take place on the first weekend in December too throughout the country because people I think are very, very upset about this and we've been getting so many calls to the office, people saying, look, we want to do something. The lockdown lifts on December 12th. We want to have a public witness, even if it's just lots of local public witnesses to stand in solidarity with those babies and to demand that the people responsible are answerable for this. So... That's, you know, 
to me that's a very hopeful thing Jonathan you know that we haven't lost our sense of compassion that the movement hasn't and they haven't lost their sense of outrage you know yes because this is you haven't lost the capacity to be horrified to be horrified because you can see in some countries where I think the pro-life movement becomes very defeated that there doesn't seem to be any sense of outrage or people haven't aren't able to muster enough people together to to, to, to to make it publicly known that this is absolutely unacceptable. So that's what's going to be happening in the coming in the coming days and weeks. And it's it's very important. You know, it's very important that we stand to remember these children and to say that this has to stop. That you it, this practice of stabbing babies in the heart of injecting potassium chloride into the hearts of living, growing human beings innocent babies in the womb has to stop that babies cannot be left born alive after after an abortion and doctors saying they don't it's unclear as to who will look after these children that is not a civilized society ladies and gentlemen that was my conversation with neve brain of the life institute thank you for joining us this week you can head over to lifesightnews.com click on the podcast tab and subscribe to this podcast so that you can have each weekly episode delivered thank you so much for joining us this week and we do hope you'll join us again next week bye for now